Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 128, The Stamp Act. On February 6th, 1765, the British Prime Minister, George Grenville, introduced legislation to impose a stamp tax on North America. This law would mean that paper used in the colonies would have to be produced in London and embossed with a stamp. This paper could be used for legal documents, newspapers, playing cards, magazines, etc. It was a controversial measure, and Grenville had spent a whole year after the Sugar Act preparing it. The Treasury had been working out what the best approach would be for the tax to work with American circumstances, while Grenville had consulted with colonial representatives. He'd watched the reaction over the past year to the American Duties Act, and he was positive. Nobody wanted more taxation, obviously, but there was an absence of organised resistance. It was the same story in Parliament. Only the most radical of MPs questioned the Act, while Pitt didn't bother to attend the debates. Grenville introduced the bill with a lengthy speech which outlined the bill's merits and preempted any potential opposition. A few MPs spoke, while not questioning that Parliament had the right to tax the colonies, but wondered whether the measure was wise. Charles Townsend remarks that he was happy with this, since if Britain were to defend America, then America should help pay. Then Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Barr spoke. He said that America could pay the tax, but they would be disgusted. He went on to say, quote, They planted by your care? No. Your oppressions planted them in America. They fled from your tyranny to a then uncultivated and inhospitable country. And yet, actuated by principles of true English liberty... They met all these hardships with pleasure, compared with what they suffered in their own country, from the hands of those who should have been their friends. They nourished up by your indulgence. They grew by your neglect of them. As soon as you began to care about them, that care was exercised in sending persons to rule over them, to spy out their liberty, to misrepresent their actions, and to prey upon them. Men whose behaviour, on many occasions had caused the blood of those sons of liberty to recoil within them. They protected by your arms? They have nobly taken up arms in your defence, have exerted a valour, admits their constant and labours industry for the defence of a country whose frontier, while drenched in blood, its interior parts have yielded all its little savings to your emolument. And believe me, remember... I, this day, told you so. That same spirit of freedom, which actuated that people at first, will accompany them still. God knows I do not at this time speak from motives of party heat. What I deliver are the genuine sentiments of my heart, however superior to me in general knowledge and experience from the reputable body of this house may be. Yet I claim to know more of America than most of you, having seen and been conversant in that country. The people, I believe, are as truly loyal as any subjects the king has, 
but to people jealous of their liberties. They will vindicate them if ever they should be violated. End quote. It was a speech met with amazement by Americans and bored indifference by the British. After its long first session, the bill provoked almost no debate, receiving final approval on February the 27th. The Lords passed it on March 8th, and it received royal assent on March 22nd. Grenville was very pleased with this act, his masterpiece. It would be virtually self-collecting, and revenue would only increase as America's population and civilization grew. It was a fair distribution across the colonies. The stamps were only two-thirds the cost of their British equivalents, a cost which could always be increased when Americans grew used to it. It was a tax that had great potential, asserted Parliament's right to tax the colonies, but was unobtrusive and mild, mostly paid by lawyers and printers, who could quietly pass on the cost to customers. It had a lot of accompanying explanation, which discussed that the funds were for America's defence and that it would not be spent outside of the Americas. He had learned from complaints about the customs services being staffed by the British, so planned for stamp masters to be nominated by the colonies. Everything seemed promising. But behind the streamers and confetti, storm clouds were gathering. Figurative storm clouds. The king became increasingly reluctant to appoint Grenville's choices, instead going for Friends of Butte. The temperature slowly increased, but things came to a boil with a letter from General Gage in America concerning the matter of quartering. Quartering troops had been an issue in North America since the outbreak of the Seven Years' War, if you can remember as far back as the troubles faced by Major General Braddock. To explain the specific issues faced in 1765, I'm going to need to get into some slightly arcane British law known as the Mutiny Acts. One of the long-running themes in British political consciousness was a distrust of standing armies. One of the ways that this was handled was that a permanent standing army was not created. Instead, the Mutiny Act was passed annually, which concerned all army administrative functions, everything from recruitment and penalties for desertion to, of course, housing. The Mutiny Act only applied to the British Isles, which proved a point of contention with the American colonies. Instead, each colony passed its own Mutiny Act, but this fundamentally required on the cooperation of the colonies. As British military operations in North America wound down following the Seven Years' War and Pontiac's uprising, Gage started to look ahead to what he would do with the North American army. It made little sense to keep soldiers stationed in Indian Territory. They would need to be relocated to the seaboard. Gage knew there would be resistance to this within the colonies and felt that he would be unable to compel them by force. Therefore, in November 1764, Gage wrote to the Secretary of War, Wellbore Ellis, 
for Parliament to extend the Mutiny Acts to North America, adding a stipulation that commanders could quarter their soldiers in private homes if barracks or public houses were inadequate. It should go without saying that this was a contentious move, but I want it to be absolutely clear just how contentious it was. The freedom from having troops quartered in homes went back to the 1628 Petition of Right. Ellis, with the source of misplaced enthusiasm that often characterises British ministers of the era, followed through on the request of Gage without informing Grenville. The redesigned Mutiny Act of 1765 made its way to the king before somebody finally told Grenville of the changes Ellis had made. Just in time. It would have been a political bombshell that could have devastated the government, even in the hands of a less skilled orator than Pitt. Grenville wasn't ignorant of Gage's dilemma, though. He thought he could rework the language to get it passed without the opposition noticing what it meant. Ellis directly undid the petition of right. While Grenville suggested that when a barracks or public house was not available, soldiers might be stationed in, quote, such manner as had hitherto been practised to billet his majesty's troops in his majesty's dominions in America, end quote. It was an improvement, no doubt, but... Not much. When Ellis introduced the bill to the Commons, on April Fool's Day, because who says that history doesn't have a sense of humour, it received instant opposition and failed to pass. Grenville, profoundly embarrassed, withdrew the bill and regrouped. Grenville's aides spoke with colonial experts such as Benjamin Franklin and former Massachusetts Governor Thomas Pownall. They proposed that governors be allowed to seize vacant buildings and turn them into temporary barracks, which would be furnished by the provinces. It was ensured that everything in this new proposal would be what was granted by the colonies during the war. This included measures such as impressments of wagons, which would then be compensated, commanders of soldiers stationed in public houses would pay for food but not board, Soldiers would cross ferries at half price, and punishments for desertion in Britain would be extended to North America. It was thought that no opposition could reasonably argue that this was a violation of rights. On May 3rd, the Quartering Act, as the legislation was known, was introduced to the Commons, where it passed on a voice vote. It thereafter passed the Lords and received royal assent on May 15th. It's quite safe to say that nobody at the time expected what happened next. To me, the Quartering Act feels like the product of a long meeting. A group of you sit down in a meeting to go through a prepared solution to a problem which is immediately shot down. People try to brainstorm ideas, and after a few hours, somebody says something that somebody likes. Everybody else coalesces around the idea, how much better this idea is than the original idea, and the meeting ends. But because they've been in the meeting so long, they've lost sight of what the original problem was they were trying to solve. The 1765 Mutiny Act 
was so bad and received so much opposition that the Quartering Act was excellently designed to get through Parliament without opposition. What is missed, though, is that Gage actually had a problem in North America. He needed to get around the authority of the colonial governments to move soldiers back to the Atlantic seaboard, and he wanted to be able to quarter troops in private homes. The Quartering Act did not allow either of those. Arguably, the person most unhappy with the Quartering Act was Gage, although it did receive plenty of opposition elsewhere. Franklin and Pownall had designed a very clever law that followed what had been done in the colonies during the war, but they missed the important distinction that those had been voluntary contributions to a war effort. Each colony passed its own version. The costs faced by ferrymen and innkeepers were in-kind taxes, and while they did not like them, they'd been passed by their own colonial assemblies, their elected representatives. The Quartering Act was something completely different. It was imposed. It was imposed by Parliament, and it was imposed by Parliament in peacetime. The assemblies were outraged. Their right to control taxation in the colonies was being usurped by Parliament. Economically, there was no difference. But offering money to a friend is a different situation than having money forcibly taken away. This is where we'll leave the narrative for this week. Grenville was losing support from the monarch and had just set off two time bombs in the Stamp and Quartering Acts. Join me in our next episode, when we follow King George's attempt to change course. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.